afternoon, everybody. I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute. I'm glad to welcome you all here for an interesting discussion. Uh, yesterday was Pi Day. Today is Pi Day. Um, I think that worked better in print. Um, we are delighted to have with us two longtime experts on tech and telecom issues. I've known Tom Hazlett longer than either of us would like to admit, going back to our days in California. I know him, I knew him back before anything he lists on LinkedIn. But I did find this very sad line in his Wikipedia biography. He auditioned to join the traveling Bolshoi Ballet in Hollywood in 1962 but was rejected and ultimately studied economics instead. <laughs> That's a sad story. <laughs> but anyway, he did study economics. He got a PhD. He taught economics at Davis and Wharton and George Mason. He wrote a column for Reason. He became the chief economist of the FCC. And he is now at Clemson University, where he holds an endowed chair and is director of the Information Economy Project. He has written many academic papers and several books and monographs. Uh, today he's here to talk about his magnum opus, The Political Spectrum, The Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology from Herbert Hoover to the Smartphone, or as I call it, 90 Years of Rent Seeking. Um, our second speaker this uh, afternoon, Ajit Pai, has what Bill Niskanen used to call a Harvard degree and a Chicago education. Best of both worlds. Since law school, he has worked on telecom policy at the Justice Department as a chief counsel in the Senate at Verizon and for most of the past 11 years at the FCC. He was appointed by President Obama to be a member of the FCC in 2012 and since last January has been its chairman. He says that his philosophy is that Consumers benefit most from competition, not preemptive regulation, in order to achieve more innovation, more investment, better products and services, lower prices, more job creation, and faster economic growth. We'll start with Tom Hazlett discussing whether that has always been the guiding philosophy at the FCC. Tom. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, David, for that uh, generous introduction, no matter how it was intended. <laughs> and I am in indebted to David and, and the Cato Institute for uh, inviting me. It's an honor to, to be here, certainly in the uh, F.A. Hayek Auditorium, uh, named after my old friend, Friedrich Hayek. And, uh, uh, if you want to Google Hazlitt and Hayek on YouTube, uh, you'll, you'll see some uh, nice historical discussion on economics, and uh, you'll really get the latest in uh, top 1970s men's fashion. <laughs> That's what you've got there. I certainly greatly appreciate Ajit Pai, uh, chairman of a notable federal agency, for generously offering to um, provide expert commentary today. And uh, Chairman Pai uh, exhibits a bold level of engagement in the marketplace of ideas, and that is assuredly in the public interest. And thanks to the audience today for the nice turnout. Um, I'm glad you all got your brackets done. Uh, and it's gratifying that you're, you're here. Um, if I hadn't... Uh, just written a book explaining how these things work, I think you are all here to hear me talk about my book. But uh, uh, let's get started. Um, wireless is a technology so curious that it's named for what it's not. And uh, is it a magic trick? Well, uh, it seems to be. And certainly, at the outset, it was. And in fact, in 1939, the World's Fair, a new killer app is being debuted, wireless television. And the demonstration was created with a special television created out of glass, a glass box, to counter rumors that, in fact, what was going on were 
tiny actors on a miniature stage. They wanted people to see the actual electronics. And um, it turned out to be real science, of course, and uh, it, had, it had some applications. Uh, when put into the marketplace, uh, it seemed that consumers liked it. And particularly with the discovery of broadcasting in the 1920s, um, economics kicked in, a mass market radio service developed, and then there was conflict over the rules of the road. And uh, it was widely said at that time and later, certainly to this day, that a market failure developed. There was a cacophony of competing voices, endemic spillovers and wireless use, static interference that dissipated the market, inevitable externalities. And there had to be centralized administrative control. Broadcasting stations could not, if left to their own, keep from destroying one another. Uh, actually, no. That was not the history. The initial robust development of radio was under a first-come, first-served system of property rights and frequencies. <clears throat> uh, this was imported from common law, priority and use, and the rules were enforced by the U.S. Department of Commerce. The first regulator of radio was the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, 1921 to 1928. And by the way, we're joined today by what, according to my count, is the, uh, who is, by my count, the 93rd regulator of radio. You tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you've counted. <laughs> in the United States. And uh, these first-come, first-serve rules, uh, in fact, created an orderly marketplace with uh, brisk development up until February 23, 1927, when, in fact, the Radio Act was put into place. Uh, the Radio Act was disruptive policy, it overturned and preempted property rights and frequencies. The first sentence of the act says that all vested rights uh, are eliminated, uh, cannot be asserted against the United States government for the ownership of a frequency. And in fact, a public interest licensing standard was developed where a regulator would set aside particular frequencies for particular tasks. A commission would define the services, the technologies, and the business model. Now, this change in regulation was not due to chaos. It was due to capture. In fact, the standard of regulation, public interest, convenience, or necessity, uh, came from an organization founded in 1925, the National Association of Broadcasters. The upshot was that a government agency, not competitive market forces, would allocate airwaves. And authorizations would not define frequency spaces what, but would define what parties could do with frequencies, the actions and the markets. So a golden resource in the budding information age was taken off the market. From now on, allocations would be by commission, and the political spectrum was born. Now, the most famous speech ever given by a US regulator, at least as of yesterday, <laughs> occurred on May 9, 1961, Las Vegas, Nevada, before the annual meeting of the National Association of Broadcasters. The chairman of the FCC, Newton Minow, announced that the mission of the agency had met with disaster. He called it a vast wasteland, referencing television. Minow's diagnosis was that there had occurred market failure. And of course, there was some irony that the markets he condemned were a product of the spectrum allocation system he championed. And even more ironic that the regulators at that instant condemning the vast wasteland were thwarting the entry by competitors using TV cables or satellite frequencies to create new platforms that would challenge and eventually vanquish the object of Minnow's scorn. Fast forward just 20 years and get to, as of yesterday, 
the most vilified statement ever uttered by an FCC chairman. Television, it's an over-under, gives, gives us all something to shoot for. <laughs> Television is just another appliance. It's just a toaster with pictures. And by that, of course, Fowler, who had been appointed by President Ronald Reagan, was denigrating the special status of wireless for a particular policy purpose. He was suggesting a regularization of the rules of the marketplace. The message, don't get fancy. Adopt minimalist rules that support competition and allow markets to innovate with customer feedback determining results. Well, the storm after that controversy has yet to subside, except that somehow the arc of history was bending. Gradually, the restrictions from the central allocation system did loosen. Regulations did delegate authority. Consumers became more able to choose. Now, why exactly how is still a bit of a mystery. I do spend about 400 pages on the topic, and I invite you, of course, to spend time with some of the thinking. But there are two stories in particular that will illustrate this path of liberalization. Let's start with one of the great inventors of the 20th century, Major Edwin Howard Armstrong. He was actually a Columbia University professor of physics. Uh, he liked to call himself major. He was very patriotic, served in both world wars, doing radio technology. Um, one of the key contributors to AM technology, and in fact, in the early 1920s, the uh, largest shareholder in RCA, Radio Corporation of America, because of his patents. But in 1934, he came up with a better mousetrap, FM radio. And he had to get permission to destroy his, <laughs> to deploy his new idea using radio spectrum. Well, the regulator checked with all the experts on radio technology and found out that FM didn't work. And uh, it took some years for the preeminent expert on radio technology on the planet, Edwin Armstrong, to get his allocation. But finally, he did. And in fact, 500,000 radio sets in the Northeast United States tuned in to high fidelity radio and got the wonderful, beautiful, musical quality that Edwin Armstrong told them they would. But in 1945, at the conclusion of World War II, the FCC reconsidered and uprooted the entire band on absolutely specious grounds. I'm not making it up. The FCC had a sunspot theory of radio interference uniquely applied to this band and to this particular service. Armstrong, who would have been the first to worry about interference from sunspots, objected violently to the move, introduced all kinds of scientific evidence against it, but to no effect. The FCC, on political grounds and political pressure, eliminated the FM allocation made it, and made existing radios worthless. A new band was assigned, but by the time that the new radios were designed, no one would buy. Armstrong distressed and humiliated, committed suicide in 1954. Had he lived to see FM radio given a straight-up chance to compete, as it finally was in the 1960s, he would have enjoyed seeing its almost instant domination of the incumbent AM technology. Now, by the way, this is a picture of a 1941 Stromberg Carlson radio, and I don't know if you can see it very well, but it has the old FM band, 42 to 50 megahertz. And you know that that's not where FM is today and since 1945. Can't see it at all. Oops. There it is. Sorry. Uh, the middle band is FM, and it's 42 to 50 megahertz. Um, there's a better picture in the book, by the way. <laughs> So this is a, a graphic representation of the FCC killing field uh, into which great wireless inventions have been buried. And I will say that the reason I tell the Armstrong FM story is because that technology actually got into the marketplace before it was killed off. The great majority of these wonderful ideas never make it to a consumer 
they're nipped in the bud. So there was tragedy. There was non-market failure. But there was progress. And let's identify that progress by fast-forwarding to 2005. And in that year, there was another idea for a different radio. And a uh, very innovative company in Cupertino, California, that had uh, very nearly gone out of business just a few years before, had survived to think about how mobile phones could be prettier, better, and vastly more functional. And uh, yeah, they invented the iconic consumer product of this century. But just as had Edwin Armstrong, Steve Jobs needed spectrum. The radio does not work without access to airwaves. But by 2005, the system called by its practitioners, Mother May I, had been, at least in some significant part, reformed. Apple did not have to ask permission for its new device from the FCC, because the rights to use radio spectrum in flexible ways, deploying innovations not thought up already or approved by regulators, had been ceded to mobile carriers in the form of liberal licenses. This put the onus on the networks to manage their own frequency spaces, and yes, new spectrum-guzzling devices would interfere with existing users, but the political spectrum had been set aside. A new spectrum store was open for business, and in this event, the mobile carriers approached by Apple to sell access to airwaves, well, the mobile carriers bid fiercely against each other to host this new iconic iPhone. The price Apple paid was negative. And not only did the iPhone hit the market to the tune of hundreds of millions and instigate its own smartphone revolution and, of course, uh, competition on the other side, it was the ecosystem to follow, the fact that there are millions of applications for iPhones and Android devices today that are now in the radio space without approval from a commission, okay? This is a level of complexity unheard of in the 1920s or 30s when it was said that market failure, too complex for businesses to figure out where the rules of the road should be bent to accommodate interfering devices and services. So regulators could hardly have known what would happen when the rules were loosened, a, a true social revolution and the complexity that comes in with all these devices, with all these services, and you don't think about them, okay? But you're downloading your Angry Birds and the Pandora and the Facebook and the, and the Map apps and the Snap and the Kindle downloads and your dog tracker and your cat videos are all interfering with one another. And the complexity cannot be managed by an administrative central authority. Whole new sectors are created, and nary a thought is given to that the platform that they sits on is a liberalized, deregulated platform that can only exist because competitive forces are allowed to replace what Hoover, uh, Herbert Hoover asserted had to be done by a central authority. Now, the main milestones uh, can be put in different terms, but I'll quickly list a few. Competition among networks, monopoly and the natural monopoly concept were fading out by the 1980s. It was a radical experiment to have two competing cellular licenses uh, when those licenses went out 84 to 89. Uh, we pared back the restrictions and allowed, for example, cellular operators to adopt the technology of their choice. That comes in the late 80s. We went to auctions for licenses, competitive bidding, market assignment. But the money that's been raised, well over $100 billion today to the U.S. Treasury, that is the chump change. The actual gains are in the liberalization of the rights and, in fact, the consumer surplus, uh, easily more than a trillion dollars that sits upon the liberalized spectrum that's being used in the marketplace. So it's really this revolution in the property rights in frequencies that discretion is ceded to the competitors in the market 
and in fact taken away from the central authority. And by the way, just in passing, this is a global phenomenon. The United States in many respects has led the world, uh, not always on the absolute frontier, but we have uh, been important and it's a huge and uh, dynamic market that uh, uh, we should be proud of. On the other hand, let's look around the world. Today as we, as we sit here, over six billion people have mobile phones, more people than have toothbrushes. And that's a world that did not exist in the 1980s or 90s, as you know, particularly if you travel around the globe. Now, this revolution is still in progress. And in fact, regulators understand that we have to do more because it turns out that as successful as that revolution has been, and as much as liberalization of spectrum has given us most frequencies today, the great majority of beachfront property is in fact still squirreled away in allocations uh, made by no longer living regulators. Now to get around this, for example, the FCC, the regulatory agency in the United States, made a conclusion that, for example, the television allocation uh, that dates from the late 1930s was actually overly generous to the platform used, importantly, to deliver I Love Lucy. But it is no longer, it is no longer so important, and in fact there has been a procedure that's uh, somewhere uh, about its uh, eighth or ninth year now, um, uh, going forward for the next few, to take about a quarter of the TV spectrum band and move it over and make it available for mobile services. Um, it's a great idea. It's interesting that under the public interest allocation system, the regulator cannot simply identify a misallocation and move the spectrum. The idea of the incentive auction was to pay TV stations to exit the market. Pay the TV station for its license that had been issued in the public interest. Now, you should think about that a little bit. It's, it was exactly the right move in terms of how we could create progress. But it does reveal what the actual dynamics of the underlying regulatory system are. The top-down methods that are used, including with the incentive auction, uh, are a step in the right direction in some cases, but certainly not enough. And I talk a lot in the book about, in fact, marketizing the move to the market, deregulating the process of deregulation. That is to say, allow the incentives for spectrum allocation to be as competitive as they are now in competitive bidding for licenses. So uh, in a technology, a regulatory technology called overlays, the government can, in essence, vest the current users of spectrum and just issue all the rights around them and secondary rights to use that existing spectrum subject to an agreement with the existing users. That puts property rights in the market that allow parties to bargain and to discover through trial and error and profit incentives how efficiencies can be created. New technologies, changing out old stuff, making more efficient use of radio spectrum, taking some stuff off the air, putting it on fiber, all those kinds of substitutions. And by the way, now that we have some of these TV licenses uh, being sold to the government and they're got new licensees coming in, T-Mobile was the big buyer in that incentive auction, you have overlays in the market owned by companies like T-Mobile, TV stations are still there, and guess what? You see that the dynamic goes much faster than the government could arrange, and in fact that the government has arranged. And so even today, this week, you have deals announced between TV stations moving off the air fast. Why? Because property rights are in place. T-Mobile knows if they can get those TV stations to stop broadcasting, they can use the space for something more valuable. Professor Lawrence Summers, I don't know if he's ever been in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, but he, he ought to be with this. I'm going to end with this. He said just a few years ago, I think this is in 1991, a quote, he, he, he was sort of thinking about his Harvard education and what he had learned about economics, and he said, markets are able to do things that people used to think required government coordination. Markets make it possible to rent videos in every town in America with no public involvement. That seemed fascinating in 1991. How could you have the complexity of a video market, okay? Um, yeah, I agree with him. That was hard. Difficult to see how a commission could actually make the rules work on that and get the social product you got from the video market.
But let's step it up to 2018 and see how far, how far we've come now, particularly in the alleged market failure of radio spectrum. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. And now we'll hear remarks from Chairman Pai. Well, thank you uh, so much, uh, David, for the uh, kind introduction and invitation to participate. Thanks as well to Cato for your advocacy uh, over the many years across many fields, including ours. Uh, thanks as well to uh, Professor Hazlett for that uh, incredible commentary. I have to say that I feel like the economic concept I am thinking of a lot right now is opportunity cost. I mean, given the cultural benefits that civilization was denied because you did not make the dance troupe back in 1962. <laughs> um, one can only wonder how things would have turned out uh, had you made it. But uh, no, in all seriousness, no, thank, uh, though, thank you for uh, the work that you have done, including on this book, uh, which I did actually read every page of. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary read. And uh, as I was going along chapter by chapter, going through AM radio and FM radio and cable and satellite and wireless, uh, I thought about one of my favorite uh, philosophers, and I refer, of course, to Yoda, who in The Empire Strikes Back, when he's instructing Luke, as you probably remember, he says, you must unlearn what you have learned. And so much, I think, of communications regulation is uh, now accepted wisdom. It is this way because it's always been this way. And there's a sometimes a hesitance to look at the facts and to consider or reconsider first principles. And one of the things I enjoyed in this book was the fact that it forced me to look at how the history of these different technologies evolved or didn't and how uh, some of the accepted wisdom we have uh, just uh, accepted uncritically uh, should actually be challenged. I'm grateful for two things in particular. Uh, the first, that I'm not mentioned in the book. Uh, and uh, secondly, even more importantly, of course, is for some of the insights that it offers. And I thought I'd spend just a couple of minutes uh, talking about and building upon Professor Hazlitt's comments on what I think those insights are. The first one is how uh, profound public choice theory is in terms of explaining outcomes at the FCC and FCC policy making historically. Now, there are a couple of different vectors that I found especially salient. For example, number one, that uh, far from empowering the public, uh, the FCC style of decision making over the years actually empowers politicians and bureaucrats to make decisions as opposed to uh, the citizenry writ large. And I think of a couple of different examples on uh, page 139 of the book, for instance, and I did actually read it, so hence the, the page reference. Uh, the professor talks about a member of the New Deal uh, vanguard who uh, was staunchly defending the agency against some of the criticisms that it wasn't behaving in a market-oriented way. And uh, uh, as he put it, any call from a member of Congress inquiring how a particular application was being treated customarily led the FCC to handle it with special care. And that particular congressman was someone who, I think some, you might have heard of, Lyndon B. Johnson, who went on to bigger and better things. Uh, but just as importantly as empowering the politicians, who of course felt like they had a vested interest in this or that uh, FCC decision, was that it empowered bureaucrats as well. Uh, many, uh, an FCC regulator of both parties across different eras and uh, through different uh, technological debates, they found themselves creating a system that essentially vested control in them. They had to be the solons of policymaking as opposed to letting somebody else do it. And I thought on page 106 of this particular quotation where Professor Hazlitt is discussing uh, the scarcity rationale for broadcast regulation and the FCC's paradoxical uh, restriction on cable entry, which would have provided more competition. And as the professor puts it, quoting an FCC order from uh, many years ago, the circularity of this argument bears note. Broadcasting was regulated because spectrum was a physically scarce resource limited by nature. But when spectrum in a tube, a cable, promised or threatened to relax that scarcity, the government was allowed to extend its powers to preserve the very limitations that justified regulation in the first place. That is such a profound insight when you think about it. I mean, the FCC had been regulating for decades on a premise 
that because of an emerging technology, uh, the, the premise itself should have been called into question. Yet the agency actually squelched that emerging technology for a variety of reasons and ultimately deserved uh, consumers. Which leads to the second uh, uh, major uh, insight that I got from the book in terms of public choice, which is how, that, how FCC decision making typically has accommodated rent seeking. And as those, those of you who read the book know, there are many, many different examples that one could pick from. Um, I, the one I liked in particular was the emergence of cellular or the non-emergence of cellular. I've had the chance to meet the one and only Marty Cooper, who placed the very first cellular call in the early 1970s. And I remember after meeting him and seeing the prototype, this giant cell phone that he used to place that first call, wondering, well, why did he place the call in the early 1970s, in the year I was born, yet cellular as we know it didn't emerge until I was pretty much out of law school in the 1990s. And the book goes to extraordinary lengths to detail exactly why that was. And one of the reasons uh, was that the FCC was besieged by a couple of different uh, entities that thought this was a competitive threat or they just simply didn't want the FCC to be focusing on uh, yes, the new and emerging technology. And one of the quotes on page 182 that I love, uh, and he, here the professor quotes a 1974 order from the FCC. Even in moving forward to, on cellular, the FCC clung to old prejudices. In particular, the agency deemed cellular a, quote, natural monopoly. You've heard that before. So uh, that was so, quote, technically complex and expensive that competing cellular systems would not be feasible in the same area. Now, just think about that. 43 years ago, 44 years ago, the received wisdom at the agency was that you cannot have competition. It's way too technically complex. The most we can hope for is for one licensee in a particular given area. And so we should heavily regulate uh, the marketplace accordingly. It's incredible how radically different the debate is today. I mean, today, of course, the question is over whether we should go from four competitors in national wireless to three, or you know, should we have all these, uh, how much competition is enough and, and the like, and how do we incentivize competitive entry? And it, it's really incredible, to me at least, how uh, the technology and the economics have challenged the received way of thinking. Uh, the other aspect of public choice that I thought was uh, very interesting as well was that how uh, ultimately uh, the way of decision making has harmed consumers. And after all, that is the end goal of all of these, uh, of everything that we do. And quite often, this harm to consumer welfare comes under the guise of what the professor calls very humorously throughout the book, technical reasons. Well, we have to make this decision. We understand that uh, you know, it might not be popular in some quarters, but for technical reasons we have to prohibit you from engaging in this emerging technology or we have to restrict output or you know, choose whatever end you want. And here, and the professor referred to this in his comments, uh, the petition to saddle this new emerging technology of FM radio, Professor uh, Armstrong's uh, technology, with, uh, with all kinds of regulatory restrictions. They ultimately were moved up in the band, as the professor mentioned, after World War II. Uh, but to me, the technical reasons uh, excuse was best uh, shown in 1944 when the FCC got a couple of petitions with a bold proposal, toss every FM station off its assigned frequency and relocate the entire industry up the dial. All existing equipment, so consumers had spent thousands of dollars buying this FM radio equipment because they really liked the service. All existing equipment, transmitters owned by stations, receivers owned by listeners would become obsolete. Proponents claim the frequency switch would help FM stations avoid ionic interference, a threat alleged to emanate from sunspots. We are regulating this technology for your own good. Trust us. And think about how many decades of consumer welfare were forestalled or in the immediate years prohibited because the agency essentially restricted the ability of Armstrong and other FM pioneers to be able to engage in what they were doing best. And I think that is uh, one of the aspects that uh, the FCC should always be on guard of, about. Same thing with cellular, too. The professor quotes on page 181 a study that concluded that had the FCC proceeded directly to licensing from its 1970 allocation decision, cellular licenses could have been granted as early as 1972, and systems could have been operational in 1973. And the study's authors found that the FCC's spectrum allocation process caused a 10 to 15 year delay 
in cellular service. And the professor suggests that actually might be on the conservative end of things. Ultimately, I think the argument that he is making from a pub public choice perspective is that whatever the veneer of uh, FCC decision making, the end result is that politicians and bureaucrats ended up reducing consumer welfare in a way that ultimately wasn't good for the American public. And that leads me to the second key insight, which I'd like to talk about before uh, turning it over to the floor, which is that uh, I think the market mechanism, as he conceives it, uh, has delivered far more value over the years than the amorphous and elastic public interest standard. And with respect to the former, of course, uh, Coase features very prominently in the book. I still remember when I was in law school, Professor Coase was teaching at the University of Chicago, and I would see him in the lounge, and one of my, the great regrets of my life is that I just didn't have the courage as a piddling first and second year law student to go up to him and just talk to him. I wish I had. Uh, God only knows uh, how much uh, richer my um, appreciation of his work would have been. But it, it really is incredible to think that in the late 1950s and early 1960s, he was pioneering an idea that was almost quite literally laughed out of the academy, the halls of Congress, and even the halls of the FCC. This notion that assigning property rights and minimizing transaction costs would ultimately allow uh, the, uh, the asset itself to be allocated to its highest valued use. And the professor quotes a couple of my predecessors at the commission who said that the likelihood of any spectrum being auctioned should be akin to the Easter Bunny winning the Preakness. It was it laughed out of the hall because who thought, well, why on earth, how could you on earth you could trust this market mechanism to allocate this scarce resource? It should be the all-knowing regulators of the FCC who figure out what the ideal purpose of that spectrum is, and then pick and choose among your friends here in the audience to decide who should best be empowered to use that scarce resource. Um, I think that the success of his uh, uh, professor Coase's uh, theory has been proven over the years. And as the pr uh, Professor Hazlett mentions in closing, from electricity to water to pollution allowances to fishing rights, newly constructed markets have fashioned superior alternatives to command and control regulation. It was such a profound insight that Professor Coase advanced that happened to have its focus in this case on communications regulation. But I think the lesson that Professor Coase was advancing has great impact across the different regulatory sectors. I think all sectors should try to think about the insight that he offered. Uh, the other piece of it, of course, is the public interest standard. And here, uh, the professor does a masterful job, I think, of uh, elucidating why it is that that standard all too often has been uh, amorphous, has been in, subject to the interpretation of whatever particular FCC uh, majority happens to occupy the office. And this isn't a political thing so much as it is a, a, a decision-making problem. And the best example I can think of comes, uh, I think it was on page 66, if I remember correctly. And uh, uh, nope, no, it wasn't 66. It was, uh, let me check here for one second. Oh, sorry, 192. Yeah. Uh, so this is great, I promise. I'm, I'm reading it for a good reason. So uh, he talks about how FCC staffers over the years would be given an assignment. Okay, you need to approve this broadcast license renewal. Why, would that, the staffer would ask. Well, okay, here's why. So just check this out. Uh, uh, so the FCC was well-practiced in crafting grandiloquent documents detailing how any given assignment advanced public interest, convenience, or necessity. These statements, required by administrative law, laid a veneer of respectability over processes that might otherwise attract interest from journalists or prosecutors. In one revealing episode, a surprisingly self-confident FCC staffer, tasked with writing up a justification for a license award, asked the chairman of the commission to describe the policy grounds for the selection. This is in the mid-1960s. The annoyed chairman responded, you'll think of some. <laughs> Essentially, just make it up as you go along. Not only is that bad enough on the merits, you just make it up, essentially, but those merits were transferable to the exact opposite point of view at the drop of a hat. Consider the professor's next comment. In another case, the FCC voted to grant a company a TV license, and the staff wrote up an order of more than 100 pages explaining it. For reasons undisclosed, the FCC reconsidered and switched licensees. The staff dutifully revised its order using the original draft as a template, <laughs> producing an equally glowing public interest justification for the new winner. That, to me, just illustrates the fact that all too often, the agencies 
might, might well be just simply making it up. And I think that makes it critical for us to focus on the facts, to think about principles of economics, and to have a view as to consumer welfare, as opposed to whatever parochial interest might be badgering us for this or that uh, regulatory favor. And that, I think, is what I would like to close on from my perspective, is looking to the future. Uh, the professor, as I said, offers some great insights. And I would like to think that over the last year and change, we have tried to incorporate some of those insights uh, in terms of structure and in terms of policy. In terms of structure, we've tried to routinize, for example, cost-benefit analysis. I introduced uh, last year my proposal to create an Office of Economic Analysis. We have successfully adopted an order to set up this office, and Wayne Layton, who I see in our, uh, uh, in our audiences, has uh, headed up that task force. Our hope is, anyway, to make sure that economic reasoning is not just an afterthought at the FCC, but a central thought as we make our decisions. That is one of the ways to insulate the agency from that kind of uh, ends justify the means decision making that I just described. Uh, additionally, we are uh, giving teeth to Section 7 of the Communications Act. No longer will an innovator have to sit around waiting for years for the FCC to figure out whether or not it's in the public interest. We have a now have a one-year deadline for making these determinations in terms of what the public interest uh, determination will be. And secondly, in terms of policy, we are adopting more market-based solutions. Flexible use, of course, has been a profound benefit to consumers the world over. Instead of determining what the spectrum shall be used for, dictating it from up on high, and expecting entrepreneurs to make use of it, and consumers to make use of whatever uh, crumbs uh, we see fit to give them, we let innovators make that decision, and the results speak for themselves. I mean, the fact that we have these smartphones that are incredibly powerful devices speaks to the fact that innovators have been able to devote the spectrum to the highest valued use. Additionally, we want to minimize the infrastructure burdens. Increasingly, this is where the rubber meets the road. Next week, for example, we are going to be voting on an order modernizing our regulations to recognize that the networks of the future won't look like the networks of the past. Uh, the small cells of the future, the, all the guts of the 5G networks uh, need to be evaluated under a regulatory rubric that is different from the one that applied for decades past to apply to 200-foot cell towers. Our hope is that both in terms of structure and in terms of policy, uh, we can make sure that we make decisions that are the right for the American people, produce more consumer welfare, and most importantly, ensure that when the sequel to this book is written, Chairman Ajit Pai is, no longer, is not going to be featured uh, whatsoever, <laughs> except for hopefully as an example of something that went right. So uh, thanks uh, again to Cato for introducing uh, this topic, to Professor Hazlett for writing the book, and uh, look forward to an exchange. Thanks. Thank you. Um, at a conference on the anniversary of the Great Depression, Ben Bernanke said to Milton Friedman, Milton, you're right. We screwed up, and thanks to you, we won't do it again. Um, I heard you say, you're right, we screwed up. <laughs> Not sure you can promise they won't do it again. Um, all right, let's open this up to questions. Please wait to be called on and wait for a microphone to come uh, to you because we have an online audience. And announce your name and affiliation, if any. Questions? Right there. Lou Pratch, retired federal employee. Are there any real constraints to introduct, uh, the introduction of 5G now? I think you sort of started to allude to it, but I'd just like a little more information on what could go wrong on the 5G implementation. I think the biggest uh, roadblocks that we see right now are regulatory in terms of infrastructure, for instance, uh, the deployment of small cells at the scale that is necessary in order to uh, provision a 5G network uh, th th those barriers are almost insurmountable. There are multiple levels of regulatory review, federal, state, local, tribal. In addition to that, uh, you know, I think that it's simply difficult at the scale that's necessary for uh, smaller companies in particular to make a competitive splash. If you're a small company thinking about uh, deploying a 5G network in Washington, D.C., for instance, that might require you to deploy, say, a, several hundred or a thousand small cells. How do you get all the necessary regulatory approvals and deploy that network in a time that gives you the return on the investment to make uh, to, to enter the business in the first place. The other uh, regulatory barrier, of course, is a spectrum. And uh, here, as a professor points out, there uh, are a lot of the, uh, regulatory decisions that stand in the way of making more spectrum commercially available. Nonetheless, the FCC has been very aggressive over the last year 
uh, trying to tee up low, mid, and high band spectrum for use by the 5G innovators of the future. I recently announced that we'd be auctioning in November 28 and 24 gigahertz spectrum, and we intend to move very quickly on uh, other bands uh, as well. And I think that our goal, at least, is to set the table, so to speak, so that any innovator, any entrepreneur uh, is able to take advantage of it. The last thing we want is for regulation to stand in the, as a bottleneck uh, for consumer welfare. Uh, I was hyperbolically speaking, but I, I do mean it when I say that I don't want the FCC's policies on 5G uh, to stand as an example of what went wrong, that you know, consumer welfare was delayed by another couple of decades, as you see too often in this book. If I could also... Uh make a note about that. I, I actually do uh, uh, talk about some non-federal issues uh, a, a little bit in the chapter, What Would Coast Do? Uh, and the NIMBY problem is a, is, is a real problem in the United States in mobile networks because you have uh, tens of thousands uh, in the aggregate, hundreds of thousands of base stations. Now you may go to millions of base stations for 3G. It's a densification process, excuse me, for 5G. And, and you're putting in uh, very localized cells. That's fantastic in terms of the technology and the opportunity, but you run into local government uh, obstructions, clearly. And so uh, there could be uh, a significant role. In fact, there is a significant role for uh, Congress and, uh, and the FCC to get involved. And, and they are. I think they're, they're certainly aware of this and headed in, in the right direction on that. Um, I'll also say that, yes, spectrum allocation, it's a, it's a work in progress. And, and, and there is momentum. And I, I, the hard part of the book was not coming up with the horror stories, okay? <laughs> uh, there's a whole section called Silence of the Entrance. And so it's not just FM radio. It's, it's, there are a lot, and your jaw does drop sometimes when you go back through the history. But the interesting part is how it switches slowly, a little bit at a time. I think, and I certainly tried to be fair to the FCC, there were visionaries, there are visionaries uh, at the agency who, who do understand how much of a stranglehold this, the spectrum bottleneck is on, on, on efficiency and dynamic markets. And so there, there is this. But even as we sit here today, I can go through allocations that came out of the Department of Commerce, the FCC is not the only regulator involved, in 2010, which were at that time identified as fast-track authorizations, fast-track, and they're still sitting there. Okay, so, and by the way, they weren't new in 2010. It's a spectrum that was sort of in the, under the auspices of federal agencies, and that's where most of this stuff sort of gets tucked, military and non-military. And it's very difficult to have any kind of incentives within that government agency, uh, government system. And so those assignments need to be pulled over, and then it goes to a, a civilian use, a non-government use. The FCC gets involved. But that process takes, unfortunately, decades sometimes. And that, that is still there. And, and this is why in the book we talk about overlays and other incentive systems to try to get more pressure and more transparency on the opportunity costs that the current system involves. Question in the back. Bob Chittister, Free to Choose Network. Uh, first a question to Tom, do you still want to do the unfitness channel with me? <laughs> Sorry, I forgot, that was a, my idea, I, yeah. That was did your I, idea, remember? Did I trademark that? Yeah. Uh, Gar Gary Walton was going to do the sports channel and you said there's, there's a big market for the unfitness channel, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, a general question, uh, and that's this, that <coughs> I ran a public TV station for 16 years and, and we knew the formula. All we had to do was trout, uh, trot out Big Bird in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and whatever uh, was being threatened as uh, would be then put up as being lost. So therefore the regulators had to prevail. And uh, today stations still have to submit a, a uh, renewal request. And it's based on this sense of serving the community. And, and as I understand it, one of the problems with getting uh, rid of getting more efficient use of the spectrum is that they argue that, well, there are many people in the community whose only access is through the broadcast station. Is, <clears throat> do you have thoughts going forward, uh, Commissioner, in terms of how do you address that argument? How do, you, how do you get people to understand that the market will likely solve that issue? Boy, that's a, that's a great question. Um, 
I think that's one of the issues we do encounter that's very difficult that uh, in some of these communities that we have uh, heard from, th there is a single broadcaster providing service. And so, of course, uh, people in that community really rely on the broadcaster. And so I think those are that, that's one of the difficult uh, questions that I don't, I would probably defer to the professor, to be honest with you, about how to communicate uh, that kind of argument. Um, I will say the flip side of the argument also presents itself quite frequently. We have all kinds of meetings where uh, typically the advocate will say, I'm a big free market guy, but, and of course the conjunction does all the work in that sentence, uh, you've got to regulate my rival. I, I mean, it's just ruinous competition, as used to be the phrase when uh, the railroads were getting developed in the 1890s. So that, that's the other piece of it, too, that we often have to resist is, uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm, a free market is great. It just delivers so much value, but you really need to just kind of tweak things over here to disadvantage my rivals. So that's another thing I should have introduced in my own comments uh, that is of a piece with that. Let me uh, just say that there actually, uh, there is an approach that will help, quote unquote, even institutions like public TV come into the modern age. And in fact, the, the, the fact that public television stations have a lot of cachet uh, with regulators has, has expedited some transitions. So specifically, I'll go to this uh, move, uh, reallocating the TV band in the recent incentive auction and I mentioned T-Mobile is now paying TV stations to get off the air sooner than they, they have to under the FCC rule so we can do uh, 4G or 5G on, on their network, we being T-Mobile. But um, they've, made, they've made a nationwide deal with public TV stations. And the public TV stations have a less regulatory hurdle to get off the air. Now, cable and satellite and over-the-top video are three generations after the 1952 TV allocation table. We have platforms for getting video to customers, okay? Ask your teenager, did you watch TV today? And she will tell you, yeah, I'm watching Netflix right now, okay? On her cell phone. That's, that's how television is now. We're not in 1952. So that transition took place in the market a long time ago, but it's rigidly protected by the old rules and by the stasis of the system. Now, when you got the right incentives, you give T-Mobile property rights. We gave them, we're very generous. We gave them property rights for about $8 billion. And uh, we said, okay, 31 megahertz nationwide. There's a timeline for the TV stations and so forth, but they're, they're beating the timelines by paying the stations uh, to, to get out sooner. That's because the incentives are in the marketplace. We're getting the allocation. We need to expand on that model. That's the overlay model I talked about. We need to get those kinds of uh, private calculations and uh, efficient gains from trade out there so that customers can get the pretty amazing new stuff. And believe me, there's not a lot to leave behind. The opportunity costs are in stopping the future, not in welcoming it. Let's take a question here in the second row and then in the fourth row. Nicholas Zill, Institute for Family Studies. Uh, what about white-collar crime? People are afraid to answer their telephones. There's fraud. The survey research uh, is going under because people don't want to respond, and, and, and there's a tremendous amount of money spent on uh, anti-virus uh, technology and what have you. What about that? Does, how does the free market handle that? Um, I don't know if, Professor, you'd like to tackle or I'd be happy to, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in the same thing, so I'll let the chairman uh, address that. Yeah, so here, I, I mean, I think this is a classic case of where the regulator does have the authority and indeed the obligation to intervene because you see some, just given how easy it is, the, the costs of entry, so to speak, for placing robocalls and unwanted calls and the like are so low that you see quite often entire call centers set up abroad for the sole purpose of robocalling American consumers, fleecing them of their hard-earned money. And uh, one component of my discussions with some of my counterparts abroad has often been just asking for their cooperation in identifying these call centers so we can crack down on them. Additionally, here in the United States, I, mean, I do think the FCC has a role, and we've exercised that role in giving carriers the ability, for example, to block calls that are spoofed, that are obviously false. They are not... Uh, yeah, the number will show up on your cell phone. It will be, appear to be your area code, the same prefix, et cetera. I mean, there I think there's a sort of market failure, I guess you might say, uh, that enables the FCC to step in and really take concrete action. 
So that stands, I think, in stark contrast to some of the discussions we've had earlier about where regulations are actually standing in the way of consumers benefiting. And here, I think we have a targeted problem in the marketplace that the FCC is empowered to take action on. Okay, they're in the fourth row. And then over here. Ryan Prana from the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, thank you, Professor Hazlitt, for your research, and thank you, Chairman Pai, for the fantastic reforms you've done at the FCC. Thanks. Um, Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> You're off to a good start. <laughs> you made a remark in your comments about how the economic research is challenging a lot of the received uh, wisdom about telecoms regulation. However, the survey data shows that the general public still kind of sides with that received wisdom. As the FCC is a regulatory body subject to political shifts, what kind of... Um, uh, decisions are you making to protect the longevity of your pro-market reforms? I mean, I think part of it is uh, structural, as I said, creating an office of economics and analytics that uh, will have a seat at the table, uh, sometimes literally, when we're trying to forge our decisions, I think will routinize the incorporation of economics into our thinking. And I don't think that redounds to the benefit of any political party. It simply makes our decisions much better informed. You know, we have to think about cost-benefit analysis at the get-go, uh, as opposed to sort of an afterthought where we just slap a few paragraphs together and stick it in the order because, well, well we want to you know, for optical reasons or to survive judicial review or whatever. We don't want to seem arbitrary and capricious. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. I think the other aspect is uh, making sure that we create uh, value through our decisions that ultimately will demonstrate to the marketplace that, look, we've made the right choice. I mean, I, we understand that change is sometimes uh, difficult. It might seem crazy even. I mean, look, at, but look at Ronald Costa's example. I took him what was it, th from 1959 until 1993 when we actually got uh, competitive bidding authority, 34 years for society to get acclimated to the notion that we would actually auction uh, rights to use spectrum. But now it's commonplace. So you wouldn't, I think there'd be a revolt if we actually went back to the old way of doing things, the so-called beauty contest where the FCC would look into an audience of applicants and pick out which of the friends were most politically connected. I think the conventional wisdom has... Uh, can change. It might take some time to change, and it's incumbent on people like me to explain the change as best we can. And hopefully over the long term, if not also the short term and medium term, people will see, look, the uh, regulatory humility isn't just a throwaway line. It's actually a recognition that consumer welfare is maximized when we let the market mechanism, as opposed to the arbitrary selection of bureaucrats who happens to inhabit uh, the, sixth, uh, the eighth floor offices, uh, make these decisions. Okay, last question over here. Hey, Margaret McGill with Politico. Hey, um, it's an easy one, I think. Uh, you mentioned the Office of Economics. Can you talk about what um, still needs to be done to get that up and running? Yeah, so there's some uh, procedural steps. Uh, we have to uh, work with some of the internal stakeholders uh, you know, at the FCC, including our union. But uh, I'm hopeful that uh, there might, I can't remember if we have to go uh, check any other regulatory boxes in the moment. We can get back to you on that. But um, the critical thing is that you know, the decision has been approved. We're moving ahead uh, full steam, and we hope that the office will be stood up in, uh, as soon as possible. I would like to um, uh, endorse or applaud the uh, the commission for for moving ahead on the uh, uh, Office of Economics uh, and Analysis, and it's. Uh uh, I, I did a stint as chief economist of the FCC a, a while back, and uh, um, I, I may not have been as uh, proactive uh, on, on, on this kind of uh, structural reform, uh, but I observed some things, and I've, I've continued to research, and other economists certainly have spent some time on this, the, the structure of the agency in terms of actual decision-making and actual uh, analysis that's, that's in the mix is important, and, over, and, you know, and, 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 and not in every instance, and, and and, and, and there are always counterexamples, but uh, over time, uh, raising the profile and the accuracy and um, quality of the economic analysis is uh, definitely uh, helping the work in progress of uh, liberalizing spectrum policy and, and, and getting more benefits to the American public. I, I think you're on the right track with that. Well, thanks, Professor. And I'd also add one quick thing, which I should have mentioned in the connection with the office. We also want to create not just the structure of the OEA, but also a culture of big picture economic thinking. Uh, the professor talks in his book about the Bykowski paper from 2008. I mean, that's the kind of thinking that we want to encourage our economists to do because ultimately, you know, maybe the idea goes down the rabbit hole, but who knows, maybe it creates a vast
vast new marketplace that no one could have conceived. And we don't pretend to have a monopoly of wisdom, uh, the lawyers at the agency. We want the economists to be able to, to contribute as well. Well, things have changed. I mean, I do quote the uh, situation when, when Ronald Coase uh, thought about property rights and radio spectrum and published a paper in 1959. He did go to the commission and was asked to testify about his idea. And the first question from a commissioner, tell us, Professor Coase, are you spoofing us? Is this all a big joke? And uh, it actually, what caught my attention immediately was that they called him Professor before they hit him with that question. You've called me <laughs> professor many times, but I, I, I take it in, in a positive spirit. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I still call uh, my no. first grade teacher Mrs. Kearns, so yeah, old habits by heart, it's a, Often you've when earned it. it. <laughs> when an academic goes to Washington, they start the question with professor. Uh, you do have to be on your toes for what's coming next, but I, I, I do thank you very, very much. Thank you, Professor Hazlett. <laughs> thank you, Chairman Pai. Uh, this uh, event will live forever as long as current uh, internet technology is state-of-the-art. <laughs> um, thank you all for being here. Uh, you're invited upstairs for lunch on the second floor in the George Ager Conference Center. There's a spiral staircase. There's also an elevator. Thanks for being here.